With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. You ready? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. (laughs) Hi, I'm Tobias Carlisle. This is the Acquirers podcast. My special guest today is Jesse Felder. He runs the Felder Report, which is uh, a US stock market centric but macro newsletter. He's a co-founder of a multi-billion dollar hedge fund. And uh, he's got some very interesting thoughts about the market. So we're going to explore those right after this. Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquire's Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Hi, Jesse. How are you doing? Good, Toby. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Look, uh, let's get right into it. What do you think about the U.S. stock market? Well, I think we're in the midst of a, of a topping process, and I think we have been since late 17 that run up that was a strong run up late 17 early 18 uh, was probably pretty clearly a blow off top I think you know valuations um, you know that are most valuable in a, in a long-term time frame all suggest that we're near the highest valuations in history if not at all-time high valuations uh, but you combine that with over the past six or 12 months, we've seen changing risk appetites, you know, investors shifting away from risk. And to me, the combination of those two things suggests that uh, we probably entered a new bear market late last year. And uh, this rally we've seen so far this year is is a pretty, pre- I mean, I can't call it a typical bear market rally, but it does what, what bear market rallies are supposed to do, which make you believe that there is no bear market. <laughs> so I think that's, I think that's where we're at today. What, why do you think it's atypical? I think it's just you know because it's a it's a been such a strong V bottom. Um, I was looking at uh, you know rallies uh, in past bear markets, especially early on in bear markets, and I was using kind of an early 2001 analog for a while, um, and then also kind of in in early 2008. Um, and for a while, we looked really similar to that early 2001 period, but this rally's been stronger than um, than your typical. Uh, bear market rally, not in terms of the percentage gain, but in terms of how much of the losses have been recouped. So uh, the the market sort of topped out about September last year. And so now we're six or seven months into it, which is pretty typical behavior that there's often that little initial sell off, there's a rally, and then it sort of seems to drift sideways for up to a year or more before you really start seeing the carnage is—is is that what you're expecting to see? And what what would what would cause you to think that it was back on? 
Well, the, so the analog that I'm using right now, price analogs are one thing that I, I, I like to use. And actually, this was one that Ray Dalio brought up three years ago. It was a 1937 analog. Um, and the parallel, historical parallels are just fascinating. But the price analog is actually very, very close, too. You look at the past one-year and three-year price patterns, and there's like a 97% correlation between today and 1937. And so – um, that would suggest if that if that you know price analog is is valid, um, that you know prices should return to the lows pretty pretty quickly here. Um, and so you know that's one thing that I'm looking at. Uh, but I, I really do think what the market's trying to to price in right now, or what investors are counting on, is a second half rebound um, in earnings. And I think as we start seeing this, you know, um, first quarter numbers come out and start hearing more guidance from companies. If that second quarter or the second half rally uh, in earnings or rebound in earnings doesn't materialize, it looks like it's not going to materialize. That that's probably what the market's going to have to start pricing in again. And if it if it looks like that, um, and the companies that have come out recently, especially on the semiconductor side, it doesn't look like there's any second half rebound on the horizon. Um, and so I think once the market starts beginning to price that in, that that's the catalyst for a return to the lows, and then kind of see how that how the market behaves there. What uh, what was the final result in thirty seven? How far was it down from the peak? Um, you know, it's it, uh, it it gosh, it was another fifty sixty percent decline. Um, you know, back then, you know, the price analog that I'm looking when it, when you line them up, it doesn't suggest that much of a decline. It suggests we take out the the lows from last year, um, but it goes more back to like the fifteen sixteen highs uh, would be kind of the the extent of that if the price analog is valid. So. Well, that's an interesting. That's an interesting time period, and I'm glad you brought that one up because that was. I think I had been following you for a little while, but that was when, in 2014, you started your uh, your 10 percent drawdown beard, that's and right. and that that was that was reaching sort of ZZ top proportions before we finally got that that drawdown so how long take us through that that was a fun period well yeah so that was that was like uh, it was actually august or september of 14 and we hadn't had a 10 percent correction right since what was it 2011 or something like it had been in you know typically the market has one every every year and it hadn't had one for a number of years and so i thought we're getting close we have to we have to you know for a number of reasons i was expecting um, you know, the breath warnings in the market. So I said, Hey, I'm not shaving until we get a 10% correction. And then in September of 14, the market went down 9.8%, <laughs> like literally right after. And people were telling me, Jesse, okay, go ahead, round up, you can shave take it, it off. <laughs> I said, no, no, that's not it. That's not it. And so it, it was, it wasn't until, uh, what August of 15 when the market actually had its, it's, and that was a, that was a, uh, a steep, um, sell off. Um, so it was, yeah, it was eleven months of beard growth, and it was yeah, it was definitely CC top at that point. To the great, my wife was very was happy. Say, was, <laughs> to the great relief of your wife, right? Yeah. So you you proposed to her the twenty percent drawdown beard, and she said no chance. <laughs> right, exactly right. I, I I did that what last year or something. She goes, nope, <laughs> that's not happening. I know this. So, she knows the market too well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the so. The, the thing that uh, has been. Um, most amazing about this market, we, would you have thought uh, at that time that we'd be this far into it without really seeing that uh, debt clearing crash or, or decline? Did you, would you have thought that it would have taken this much longer or we still wouldn't have seen it? 
No, and I and I thought that 15, 16, the late 15, early 16 correction was probably the beginning of a new bear market. Um, you know, there was there's been a lot of speculation of what prevented a bear market at that time. I, you know, um, clearly it wasn't. Um, we did have an earnings recession, and some people even believe we probably had a, a mild economic recession. Um, just you know, it was mainly an oil focused thing at the time. Um, but yeah, I was I was um, surprised. But then when you look at you know Trump getting elected and the deregulation and tax cuts that went along with that, you know that essentially extended the cycle. Uh, and you know that's the thing with you know the, the famous you know thing everybody says about uh, markets is you know they go a lot longer. You know bull markets trends in both directions go longer than than you'd ever imagine they could. So um, yeah, but th- this this market seems to be it's supported on. It the multiple is very high, but earnings have also been very high for the S and P five hundred. Margins have been very high. It's sort of at, at every uh, part of it that you might want to look at. It all seems fairly extended. And if any of that came back a little bit, you see some uh, pretty substantial uh, drawdown in the market, at least. Well, I think you you hit on it. Um, that the the number one thing that I'm paying most attention to right now is margins because. You know, by earnings-based measures, stocks don't look extremely overvalued, um, but on sales-based measures, they do, and the difference is profit margins. And so, I think a lot of people who are using earnings-based measures don't really understand this, you know, that well. That that if you're using an earnings-based PE to ratio, you know, what have you, you're you have the embedded assumption that profit margins are going to remain at record highs indefinitely. That there will no be will not be any any reversion in those. And historically, I mean, Jeremy Grantham has said that's the most mean reverting series in finance. Warren Buffett wrote about it in '99 um, in one of his articles for Fortune, where he talked about. Yeah, he, he said you know something along the lines of you have to be crazy to think that corporate profits can remain over six percent of GDP for any extended period of time. And he goes if and so he was he was wrong about that because profits have you know remained higher than that. But he, he was right in the fact that he said, if you were to see a situation like that, it would create all kinds of political problems. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing right now with global you know, populism on the rise. This is, you know, the labor share of corporate profits is at record lows. That's the inverse of corporate profit margins. So corporate profit margins are only so high because labor has been getting a much smaller share than they ever have historically. And so now labor is essentially revolting, uh, you know, and, and through politics. And so, you know, you have, um, you know, Ray Dalio's partner at Bridgewater, um, I'm spacing on his name right now, said um, that there's all these these forces right now that are working against corporate profits. And I, if, I think if you look at what's going on politically in that light, um, then it's then then you start to see the risk to profit margins and the risk to valuations uh, over the next several years. Uh, and, 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 you know, people don't understand the risk. I mean, if profit margins revert to historical norms, then you're looking at an S&P 500 today that's at a 40 PE, you know, higher than the dot-com mania. So, um, you know, that's why my friend John Huspin uh, has come up with, you know, the one of my favorite valuation measures is a margin-adjusted CAPE ratio, essentially. Um, and when you adjust for profit margins, stocks today are higher than they were uh, in 2000, higher than they were at the peak in 1929. Um, and so I think investors who are using earnings-based measures need to be really, really careful about profit margins. What is the embedded assumption that I'm making in profit margins today, and is that a safe assumption to make? 
the bulls would say to that there there are two arguments for the um for the higher than usual profit margins and sustainably higher than usual profit margins one is that we're we're transitioning to a more asset light uh economy and that might warrant higher margins or they're able to 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 generate higher margins and the other one is that it's a global world and the the profits that US companies are earning are typically foreign uh, there's a lot of foreign profits in that mix and so there's no reason why it should be constrained by those old uh labor profit margin ratios i i, I think the, the the real way to explain it is is uh the change in the antitrust framework over the last you know 25 30 years we've had this rise of oligopolies that have essentially colluded to set pricing whether it's in you know the airline industry or or what have you i mean i had Jonathan Tepper on my podcast, his book, The Myth of Capitalism, is fantastic on this topic. And I really think that is probably the main driving force that has, uh, you know, uh, led to these um, winner-take-all type of uh, profit margins. Um, But that's exactly what we're seeing in this political backlash right now is a direct attack on that framework. So we're, we're seeing a, a total rethinking of the antitrust framework. You have Elizabeth Warren talking about b- breaking up big tech and uh, that becoming, a, you know, uh, the foundation for a political platform. And it's not not just her. It's, in, in fact, there's a to me, it's fascinating to watch the uh, bipartisan support for um, this anti-tech movement. Um, and, you know, because those are really the companies that have the, the biggest uh, you know, profit margins and cash piles and those kinds of things. And so um, to me, you know, I, I think this is what you know, Bridgewater's talking about when they say all of the forces that are working against corporate profits. It's really a, it's really a like a a groundswell of political movement that's, uh, you know, moving to take back uh, on behalf of labor what they've lost over the last twenty years. Your uh, Twitter account, uh, you, you seem to, you, you do have a theme of um, some distrust of some of the the social networks, Facebook and Google and so on. Uh, what's the what's the impetus for that, and what's the solution? Is it breaking them up? Uh, you know, for me, it was I, I got off Facebook years ago when I just started realizing it didn't make me feel good to be on there. <laughs> you know, and Twitter, you know, you can get the same feeling to be on a Twitter too. But uh, but I find Twitter, you know, immensely valuable from the standpoint of being able to follow people like you, Toby, and and I follow about a hundred accounts. And to me, the the information that that those accounts provide me with. Uh, is invaluable. Um, but I do think, you know, the, the problem with uh, social media is that it's become um, far, far too powerful. Um, you know, I, th- I think we underestimate social media's ability to get our attention whenever they want and then manipulate our attention in ways that, uh, you know, people, I'll, everybody says, no, this has not happened to me, right? I'm, I'm, you know, invulnerable to this, this kind of, kind of stuff. But, you know, all the studies show that, um, you know, whether it's manipulating people to vote a certain way or to buy a certain product or, or what have you, um, you know, the, the data collection and then the use of it to manipulate people's, uh, essentially free will is, is, gone way too far and um you know that needs to be that needs to be reined in and so i think you know i i don't know if it's breaking up these companies but you know i i had roger McNamee on my podcast a couple years ago and we talked about this when this was first kind of breaking with with facebook it's a great podcast 
yeah, he thinks uh, he, he's he's an amazing guy, and it was really really fun to do that. But he was, you know, he thinks the business model just needs to be changed, and I, and I I do agree. I think when you have such powerful platforms as you know YouTube and Google Search and um, you know Facebook, Instagram, uh, and their ability to manipulate people. And there's a profit motive behind it. Um, the the problems you know that can can arise are unimaginable, and you know very very serious. Uh, just returning to U.S. equities, are there any uh, industries or sectors in in U.S. equities that you like? I, I know I saw you tweet out uh, that bank stocks are at relative the P's of bank stocks relative to the market are as low as they've ever been. Yeah, I think it was dry house uh, chart that they shared. And I thought that was interesting. Um, you know, in some ways, I feel like this current situation we're in in terms of valuations is very similar to the dot com mania. And back then, there were a handful of stocks that I was finding. I mean, value, you know, I think the similarities there was growth was so popular, value was left for dead. And and I think we're seeing something very similar right now where, where uh, there is some true value out there. And it's and it's just being left for dead. For me, financials, a stock that I bought in, in late 90s, 2000 was Washington Mutual when it was just a simple thrift. And the stock was trading five times earnings. And, you know, the financials have been crushed then because of the same situation that's going on, which is the, the, the flattening yield curve, net interest margins are, you know, squeezed. And so, uh, you know, uh, that hurts earnings and, and financials uh, get hurt. Um, stock prices, to me, you know, that was that was a very easy investment to make because Washington Mutual was literally just um, taking in deposits and lending it on on home loans. And they hadn't gotten into any of the other types of uh, interest rate hedging or things that they got into later on when they hired the t- one of the top guys from GE. And that's when I sold the stock. <laughs> I thought when they start when they created this derivatives portfolio and it, and it grew in the tens of billions of dollars, I said, I don't understand this. I, I have to sell the stock, but um, it was it was a good investment for a period of years. Today, to me, the, one of the lessons I learned in the financial crisis was a lot of these banks are black boxes that not even the top executives at those companies really understand um, the risks they're taking and that sort of thing. So it's really hard for me to invest in bank stocks today when the business is so complex that not even they understand what's going on. I mean, even for for years after the crisis, I remember. These companies would announce earnings and then have to restate them a month or two later because, whoops, we miscalculated this and we didn't understand that. Like, if you guys don't even know what's going on with your books, how can I have any confidence? So it's interesting. Financials might be cheap right now um, in the banks. Uh, I think if you have, uh, you know, a, a well-run bank um, that's, that's, that's cheap, it's probably a good opportunity today, especially, you know, usually in this situation, in my experience, when the, the yield curve flattens to the extent that these companies get hammered it's it's usually an opportunity but i I have a hard time with those companies for for those reasons i've i've noticed that there are a number of commercial banks that have come into my screens recently they're sort of taking up uh 15 to 20 percent of the slots in the screen so that leads me to think that there might be something worth worth investigating there but i haven't looked at them in any great detail so i tend to agree with you yeah well one other point i'd make is one of the one of the things that i've followed you know since the start of my career is insider uh, activity, and I haven't seen any any significant insider buying at any of these things yet. And so, um, you know, one of my favorite books is *Reminiscence of a Stock Operator*. And in that, Jesse Livermore says, you know, when a stock gets cheap, 
the top management will never fail to buy because they know that it's a great opportunity and they know they're going to make a ton of money. So when I find a value opportunity and there isn't insider buying, to me, that's that's kind of a red flag. Why are these guys not putting their mouths with their their money where their mouths are? Or buybacks, which is another uh, another favorite topic of yours. So let's 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 talk about good buybacks and buy, bad buybacks. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's good buybacks. You know, I, for me, that was something that I followed for a long time through my career. I because I remember, you know, Devon Energy during you know 2001, 2002, natural gas prices were super cheap. The top execs started buying stock themselves and announced, you know, they're going to buy back 20% of the outstanding shares. To me, that was a great confirmation of this This stock is cheap and they're bullish on natural gas prices and all that. Um, but today, what you see a lot more often is, you know, buybacks announced. And then as soon as the company starts buying back, top execs just start dumping stock right at the same time. And so to me, that's, you know, that's not so much uh, of, a, of a bullish signal as it is. We need a buyer so we can sell, you know, and so... Uh, you know, it's interesting to me, too, that's another one that, that Congress is looking into because, you know, there's, studies show statistically insider selling goes up fivefold during buyback periods. And to me, that's just a clear sign that these companies are uh, – the executives are using the buybacks to help prop up stock prices so that they can cash out, which is to me, if you know, if that's a company I'm invested in, I would not be too happy about that. <laughs> They have some. They have some restrictions and some limited windows where they're able to trade. And so you, you would hope that when the company's doing the buyback, that any any market moving information has been properly disclosed. So that that might describe the reason for it. I think buybacks um, in aggregate tend to be value destroying because they the bulk of the buybacks happen when stocks are expensive and then they disappear when stocks are cheap. When ideally you want to around the other way so you can if, if you can find that rare management that buys stock back when it's cheap and issues it or doesn't buy it back when it's expensive then that's a good opportunity and that's a management worth following but in the aggregate i think they're probably not good for not right good i mean for investors. You, you want your you know um management to be good capital allocators you know you don't want them to to you know be burning burning cash by buying back stock at top valuations which is that's one of the things that we're seeing with companies today i look at you know some of these stocks in the dow i, I wrote about the uh the uh mcbam stocks uh, mcdonald's caterpillar uh, boeing and 3m and this was a year ago, and uh, back then, each one of these stocks on a, on a price-to-sales basis or enterprise value to revenues was trading at the highest valuation in the company's history, and some of them twice as high as they'd ever traded in, in their history. And you look at the buyback activity, and you go, how did they get that expensive? Well, they're buying back more stock than they've ever bought back in their history, too. Right. So it's, it's you know, to me, that's, that's you know representative of what's going on across corporate America in many ways. Um, and so, yeah, it's rare to find those companies that do the right thing at the right time on behalf of shareholders. And to me, it, where you find that usually is where you have owner-operated companies, right? You have guys that have a large equity stake in the company and um, do their interests are truly aligned with shareholders, not just through you know option compensation, which they want to offload at some point. Um, it's it's the owner operators that seem to make the right choice, and uh, it's interesting to me that you know these indexes now that they're float adjusted um, systematically underweight owner operated companies and systematically overweight 
companies that are not owner operated. And, and to me, that's, that's a potential problem with passive investing today. Also, people don't necessarily appreciate. That's a very interesting point. I hadn't thought about that before, but that's, that's a fascinating point. Um, well, it, yeah, it's, it's, you know, something that, uh, you know, Steve Bregman, I had on my podcast, you know, a couple of years ago, and, and he was, I don't think people appreciate the fact that it was 2004 or five when they actually changed the, the index methodology from just cap weighted to float adjusted cap weighting. Uh, and still they use the, the track record of the S and P 500, you know, back, back as if it was just uh, cap weighted, uh, you know, prior, but, uh, today's not cap weighted. It's, it's float adjusted cap. And so, um, you know, and, and to me, philosophically, too, that goes exactly opposite of what I'm trying to do. So you have companies where there's massive insider buying and they're reducing the float. So the index has to underweight those companies to some degree. And companies with massive insider selling, right, they're expanding the float. And so the index is now saying we're going to buy more of these where there's insider selling or we're going to buy less of these where there's insider buying. The greatest example of this is probably Intel. Go look at Intel, a stock chart of Intel, and you look at the chart from when it went public, when Andy Grove was running it and had a third of the shares personally, to 2000. The stock was, you know, went up like 30% a year for, for, you know, for that period. Andy Grove retires as chairman and CEO, sells all of his stock, and Intel today is still down like 30% from its 2000 high. So you look at that period of, you know, the mid-80s or whatever to 2000, and you go, okay, this is what an owner-operated company does right? He's going to make me 30% a year. And I've lost money in the 20 years since it's been a non-owner operated company. Um, and the way the passive, you know, methodology now works is that entire time Andy Grove owned a 30%, you know, the shares, we're going to underweight Intel because of the float. Soon as Andy, Andy Grove goes and sells all of his stock, boom, now we're going to overweight Intel because the float just went up a ton. And so to me, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, a philosophical problem with passive that, that a lot of people don't appreciate. It's a perverse incentive. You're incentivized to issue more stock that's not held by the owner. Right. Held by the main <laughs> shareholder. Right. Um, you and I were both tagged in a, in a, in a question about Boeing um, where Boeing's off a little bit because it's had the two, the two plane crashes and both of us sort of agree that it was extremely overvalued. I was looking at my favorite metric, which is the acquirer's multiple. And then you you said you agreed on the basis of revenues to enterprise value. And so I looked at that chart, and that was a striking chart that a few years ago, Boeing sort of took off in terms of that enterprise value to revenue uh, metric. And then I've looked at several other companies, and that, that is a, that, that's a common to a lot of companies that they've all got extremely expensive on an enterprise value to revenue basis. How, how do you account for that? Is it just the margins or what, what's going on there? I think in some cases it's the margins, um, and, but the reason I like to look at that metric is because, you know, I've, I've talked with Eric Cinnamon a ton about this, and he's another fantastic investor, very successful guy who normalizes profit margins in his valuation process. Um, because if you look at a company that's that's you know maybe looks cheap, but profit margins are at all time highs for whatever reason, you have to make a decision on are those profit margins going to normalize or they, have they literally entered a new era. And nine times out of 10, profit margins will normalize uh, over time. It's just the nature of competition. Um, and so I, I see that with a lot of companies. And that's why I'm using enterprise value to revenues a lot more these days is because I want to see, you know, I, that's basically just the easiest way for me to normalize uh, for profit margins. And I think in a lot of cases, 
it's it's uh, it's growing profit margins. But in a lot more cases, um, this is another thing I think equity investors don't appreciate. There's been this huge um, debt for equity swap where companies have been issuing tons of debt to buy back stock, and it makes the stock you know potentially look cheaper. But when you look at something like enterprise value, you go, okay, wow, but the debt has gone through the roof. And, you know, that's why I love the acquirers multiple. If you think of a company as an acquirer does, and I think you have to, to be successful over a longer period of time, um, you have to take the debt into the equation. And so when you're not doing that by just looking at just a simple price to earnings ratio or, or that sort of thing, you're, you're completely missing this, uh, this dynamic that's happened, which is tons of companies, especially small cap companies. This has really been uh, more of a, an important dynamic where companies have just issued tons of stock or uh, tons of debt, I'm sorry, to, to buy back stock. And it makes the stock look cheap. But, you know, in terms of the, the whole, you know, the, the, the holistic valuation, the debt has gone through the roof. And so um, the valuation of the whole enterprise has gone very, very high for the simple fact that I think equity investors aren't paying attention to the debt side of the equation. That was another tweet of yours that I uh, I remember looking at was the looking at the Russell 2000 in terms of enterprise value to EBIT. I think that was the metric or could have been EBITDA. And that's been, uh, I think it's it's traded around sort of maybe a dozen, a multiple of like a 12 to 15, something like that. And over the last few years, it's it looks like it's at 35 times now, which looks like it was unprecedented in the data or in that chart, which I, I don't recall how far back it went, but it was... 20 or so years. Right. I mean, yeah. And I think that was a chart from Eric Cinnamond. And, um, you know, it's fascinating when you look at, you know, price, that's similar to looking at like the median price to sales ratio and these types of things. They all show, um, you know, smaller companies especially are extremely um, overvalued and perhaps more than overvalued than they've ever been in history. And this has got to be, you know, the passive dynamic, right? So you have big, big companies that can, you know, absorb flows, passive flows. But then when you have passive flows going into a small cap uh, index, uh, you know, those those companies can absorb the flows, you know, without pushing prices higher. So, um, you know, this dynamic of, uh, you know, so much money flowing into passive, I think, is is uh, directly responsible for the valuations we've never seen before in these smaller companies. It's one of the things that I certainly didn't realize until I saw the statistic, but of the top 3,000 companies, the Russell 3,000, so the Russell 2,000 is the smallest 2,000 of that top 3,000. The total market capitalization of those 2,000 companies is 6% of the 3,000. So the ninth, the Russell 1,000 is 94% of the capitalization. The 2,000 is 6%, which is why if they get a little bit of flow, it makes them go haywire. Right. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing about those companies, too, is, is uh, you know, they're so highly indebted, too. So the equity valuation has gone so high and they've also piled on all this debt. That's why when you look at things like enterprise value, it's like, oh, my it's off the chart. <laughs> so that so. makes that the the debt makes them susceptible to a recession. So what what sort of um, what sort of indicators do you look at to 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 determine whether we're in a recession or not, or whether one is approaching, and and what what do you think about our prospects? 
Yeah, you know, I, it's so tough to to try and game whether right recession is is coming or not. Uh, to me, I, I think some of the work that Robert Schiller has done is really, really interesting, and it kind of relates back to you know re- Soros reflexivity theory, which is you know all of these things are are interrelated, and and uh, recession is as much a psychological phenomenon as anything else, and so you know falling. I think a lot of people say, well, that's fine. I'll just be, you know, super long overweight equities until we get a recession, which they don't necessarily appreciate that following falling equity prices can actually precipitate a recession. And, and you know, when you look at the correlation between, um, you know, equity prices and, you know, consumer confidence, it's it's one for one. And so I think that's that's kind of one of the things that you know Schiller's been talking about recently, which is, you know, we can talk ourselves into a recession pretty pretty quickly if 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 people just start, um, you know, we we have an earnings recession. I believe, uh, you know, we're already going to have, um, you know, negative earnings growth uh, in the first quarter, probably carried through to the second quarter, um, and so. You know that sort of thing. If it really results in falling equity prices and falling consumer confidence, you know it it kind of can snowball into a recession pretty quickly, especially ten years into an economic expansion. So, um, yeah, it's it's not something that I try and uh, game necessarily, but I, I do very closely watch the semiconductors, and 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 I think they're because you know semis go into everything now. They go into autos. They go into all kinds of things. And so semiconductor um, sales now are, you know, falling 20, 30 percent year over year. And to me, that is, you know, that hasn't happened since since the last recession. Uh, and they're kind of the canary in the economic coal mine, or at least the earnings growth coal mine for me. The last earnings recession was really just oil kind of driven and re- relegated to that sector. This one, we're now seeing technology stocks are are leading the earnings recession, uh, and it's much more broad-based. And so I, I do think that creates its own risk of kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy of, of recession. Uh, just to, to go back to something that you said earlier, just eyeballing it, I, I've never sort of done done the, the work to, to to determine if this is the case or not, but just eyeballing it, it seems to me that equity prices seem to lead recessions. They you, you get a you get the fall off in the the crash happens before we're officially recognised as being in a recession, and it happens the other way too. We seem to recover in the markets before the 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 recession is officially ended. Well, yeah, I mean, and I think you know people wonder why the Fed is so focused on stock prices, and it's it's for that very reason that they know that falling stock prices can can hurt consumer confidence and create a recession. And so it's you know kind of the the tail wagging the dog, right? The, you know you think stock prices should, but I mean this is this is Soros reflexivity theory that you know. Uh, not only do does you know what's going on in the economy affect stock prices, what stock prices do can affect the economy, and so I, I think that uh, you know is a very good point. And and people who say I'm waiting for a recession to back off my equity exposure are you Too know late. I mean, right? And and that and and evidence of that was you know the last two recessions were you know stock prices were discounting it well in advance and even probably exacerbated the you know consumer confidence that you know really led to the recession so um so yeah it's it's stuff to pay attention to but it's really you know kind of all you can do is really kind of pay attention to how those things develop uh through time rather than trying to forecast them what about something like the yield curve that that's recently flipped and it it flip-flopped a little bit is that um 
is that a is that a near term indicator? Is it something that's worth paying attention to? I you know I so many people talk about it as just an indicator. To me, I, I always want to find why why should this make intuitive sense, right? Why should I use this as an indicator? And I think I wrote about it maybe a year ago when we first started uh, you know getting getting pretty flat uh, on the yield curve. Uh, and, and it makes sense. I mean, we talked about the net, you know, squeezing net interest margins. And if you think about it in, in terms of that, you know, a, a flat yield curve, it's like, you know, uh, banks, why should we lend long when we can, you know, we can just buy, you know, short term debt uh, and make us just as much money with less risk? Um, and so I, I think it really. The yield curve probably is is indicative of what's going on in the credit cycle. A flat curve is going to lead to a lot less interest on behalf of lenders to lend. And so that creates uh, a tightening of credit on its own. And so I, I think it's it's you know it's probably valuable as an economic indicator for the fact that it, it's going to determine what's going on in, in, the, in the credit cycle. So um, to me, yes, I, I think that's important, but also these, these effects, um, you know, take a long time to work through, right? So if lenders now that the yield curve is inverted and some, you know, levels are saying, okay, it doesn't make sense for us to, to you know, really expand our loan book, you know, that's going to have effect, ripple effects over the next three to six months. And so I do think it's valuable, but for the standpoint of, it you know kind of helping tell you where you are on the credit cycle. The Fed um, seems to at, at last year it looked like it had this longer term plan to very modestly raise interest rates over a, an extended period of time, and then uh, when the when the market sold off last year, I think we were only down something like twenty percent at the at the lowest point. It looked like the rhetoric changed and and possibly the behaviours changed. Do you have any do you have any view on whether they're how they're how they're managing the economy and whether Powell's doing a good job. Yeah, you know, I th- I think what I come back to is right after the financial crisis, before Janet Yellen became Fed chair, a few years before she became Fed chair, um, uh, she was interviewed um, uh, and for the uh, what was it, Money for Nothing was the, was the documentary, great documentary on the Fed and and and. Uh, um, their role during the financial crisis. I think, um, you know, uh, Michael Lewis's was book was fantastic in kind of discussing the dynamics of what led to the, the housing bust. And, but he leaves out the role of the Fed. And Money for Nothing is a very important film, I think, um, in kind of detailing the role of the Fed in, in that. And Janet Yellen right after said, we, we need to find a way to get our economy growing naturally and not be so reliant on financial bubbles. And so I think she she was right then, you know, just honest because she was in a position where she could be honest about it um, in, in saying that, you know, uh, we had the dot com mania. Yes. And that was, you know, great for the economy until it bust. And then we had to engineer a housing bubble to try and rescue us from this this dot com mania bust. Um, and then when she became, you know, Fed chair, obviously she. Um, did her best to create a wealth effect and try and engineer higher asset prices. And I, I think, you know, the Fed is very well aware of the fact that they, because they've talked so much about a wealth effect, they're they're very well aware of the fact of asset prices on consumer sentiment. And so I do think 
that it seemed like uh, you know Jay Powell when he first took over uh, was was set on trying to normalize monetary policy from something that's been abnormal for a decade and extremely abnormal for a decade. Um, and then when he saw what it was going to do to asset prices, he said, "Wait, wait a second, I can't do this." I can't do this because, um, but but I do think we're we're moving towards a time, and Alan Greenspan has said this recently that uh, we are staring uh, stagflation right now in the face, and uh, we're headed to a time of higher inflation, a weaker growth, and if that's if that's the case, and I, I do believe that's the case, um, that we're we're seeing a new inflation framework that's you know long, very long term in nature, but it's 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 just kind of uh, growing now. Um, then the Fed is going to be forced to either start fighting inflation or trying to prop up the the market, and they won't be able to do both. And so, um, and with this talk of modern monetary theory and you know these types of things, the the Fed has come out, and and I think they're deathly afraid of this because it's essentially fiscal dominance. It's essentially you guys can't pursue the policies you want anymore because the fiscal authorities are going to go nuts and force force your hand that you're going to have to monetize this debt and fight inflation and do these things and they're not going to be able to pursue their own agenda anymore and so i think if that's the direction that we're headed um uh, then then you know this idea of the fed put is going to uh you know um go away uh right now Jay Powell is trying to have his cake and eat it too, which is I'm trying to preserve the Fed put, and I'm also trying to um, let people think that I'm going to keep inflation in check. And right now, the oil with the oil, you know, price being down, you know, he's kind of that's that's giving him some cover to allow, you know, inflation to try and pick up. But if if inflation does start picking up, uh, you know, that that's that could be what leads to the expiration of the Fed put. If we go into that. 70s style stagflationary environment it becomes extremely difficult to find good places to put your money that that period i was going to say i remember i don't remember it i was alive but i wasn't (laughs) investing um terrible for equities uh equities got destroyed on some some of the nastiest bear markets that we've ever seen terrible for bonds too um really the only place to hide was was precious metals and commodities that uh that did seem to perform fairly well through there. So, uh, and and through that period, uh, no lesser investor than Buffett could only just keep up with gold. So, how do you feel about the prospects for gold and other precious metals and commodities in general? I, I'm very bullish on gold. Um, you know, not necessarily because of inflation, but because of the fiscal situation. You know, we're already running trillion dollar deficits. Um, and there's talk about expanding those. Um, you know, I think we're, we're headed towards, you know, five to six percent of GDP on the on the annual budget deficit. Um, the dollar is very highly correlated with the budget deficit. So, um, you know, the dollar was very, very strong in the dot com mania. We had actually a fiscal surplus. Um, and then during the recession, we started getting deficits. The dollar turned turned down. Um, obviously, we had massive deficits after the financial crisis. The dollar tanked and gold did really well until about 2011 when the deficit started narrowing again. But right now, you know, this is one of the first times, one of the rare times in history where we have a widening fiscal deficit during an economic expansion. And so we're already plus, you know, trillion dollars on this on this thing uh, annually. Um, and 
if we get another recession, we're going to see two trillion dollar deficit pretty quickly, um, and that's even without any more fiscal stimulus. We have talk about you know the the Green New Deal and these kinds of things, which are massive spending programs. If we get these, we're going to just see you know this this widening deficit, and it's and it's very bearish for the dollar longer term. Um, and I think the only way if you are a dollar based investor to protect yourself is to have some kind of allocation to gold. I think, you know, uh, you know, Ray Dalio has said, if you don't own gold, you don't know history. Um, and I think that's really important that right now, a lot of the talk in Washington, yeah, I think for the first time, maybe in my lifetime, you have uh, bipartisan su support for expanding, you know, fiscal stimulus uh, and not any worry about the debt. You don't even have people talking about, you know, uh, how, how, how worrisome the debt is. And so um, throughout my entire lifetime, you know, people have been worrying about debt, worrying about debt, and the, de the debt's too big. And now all of a sudden that worry is gone. And to me, that's troubling, right? Uh, so, so I, I think that you have to have some kind of a gold allocation to protect yourself in, in in that environment. Gold seems to have struggled through a period where there has been an enormous amount of money printing, and not just from the U.S., from every other central bank around the world. And it that the debt, um, which the which I think it should matter, but it it doesn't seem to have had it doesn't seem to have impacted the economy it doesn't seem to have not, none of the um none of the risks that people said were out there seem to have manifested and that might be why it's gone away but is it just that it hasn't happened yet and that it's it's something that we're still to see yeah i think it's we've had this disinflationary environment for 30 years and so and and it's a it's a combination of things i, I think it's demographics Right. You have the baby boomers coming into the workforce, which is uh, increasing the supply of labor. At the same time, we have globalization and offshoring of labor. And so this is how companies have been able to take down labor share is a combination of the demographics and then globalization, and offshoring of labor. Uh, and that's been those have been, you know, two big forces in, the, in I think, this disinflationary environment. Um, but demographics are now shifting. Baby boomers retiring. And we're seeing, you know, these political forces I talked about, uh, you know, nationalism and you're even hearing talk about deglobalization. And so to the extent that those those trends, you know, continue to gain traction, um, you know, with baby boomers retiring and, and these things that, you know, that brings back uh, kind of an inflationary uh, impulse. And so, you know, right at the time when 30 years of disinflation or whatever has lulled people into thinking debt is not problematic, we're potentially seeing those forces reverse into a more of an inflationary dynamic and, uh, you know, could that's the one thing that could make, you know, debt really problematic is that, you know, interest rates start rising and interest expense, you know, to the government goes through the roof. And so, um, yeah, to me, all those things together means, you know, you should definitely have some, some gold in the portfolio. What, what, what do you see as the sort of catalyst or tipping point for something like that? And how, how, how sort of near term is something like that? You know, I to me, I, I have a longer term time frame than 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 most people. I, I you know, most of my investments are, you know, equity investments are like one to three year type of things. But a lot of the stuff I'm looking at is more like, you know, three to five to ten year type of trends. And so, uh, you know, I, I think this is this is something to pay attention to. Uh, it, it's a very long term dynamic, right? So I've actually been, you know, short term short term bullish on bonds just because of what's going on in the economy and the oil prices, you know, come down. Um, but longer term, I'm I'm bearish on bonds, uh, you know. And, and when I say longer term, I'm saying over the next 
three to five years. And so I think this is something that, you know, uh, uh, will take some time to play out this inflationary dynamic. It's very, very long term in nature. It might be a 20, you know, 20 year, uh, 10 to 20 year type of type of dynamic. Um, but it really, I think it all depends, too, on uh, how much debt we start to issue, how much fiscal stimulus we start to see, uh, and, and what goes on in terms of risk appetites around the world, too. Um, so uh, all those things are kind of unknowable until we see how they, they play out. Um, one of the indicators that you watch, the M1, seems to be at the lowest level since uh, the last Great Recession. Um, what is the M1, and, and, and why do you pay attention to it? Well, you know, the, the money supply is something to pay attention to. It's actually not something I pay, you know, super close attention to. The rate of change is important for, for various reasons. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's actually not something that I pay a, t- a ton of attention to, to be honest. There's a, the, I, I like um, indicators that are much more um, tactile, I guess, things that have a, have a direct bearing on on uh, investments on a day-to-day basis. So a lot of the macroeconomic stuff to me is not as valuable as as where's the dollar going, you know, that that type of type of thing. So so what 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 are your preferred indicators? And so what are, what are you looking at? So we know that the market's expensive because we can look at say any you can look at Cape, which uh, is just a inflation-adjusted earnings to the price. So you can look at Tobin's Q, which is replacement value of assets against their market value. Or you can look at even Buffett's favorite measure, which is just total market capitalization against gross national product, I think, which is just the size of the stock market relative to the size of the economy. All of those look at three different, very very different aspects of the market. And they, they basically all give you the same answer that the market's extremely overvalued. But it's been that way for an extended period of time. It's been that way. Maybe it's sort of left the long-term averages in 1996 or the late 1990s, and then at various points through there, we might have we might have touched long-term averages in 2009. I don't know if we got that cheap in in the 2002 recession, but or the 2002 decline. But it's one of those things that I'm I'm I, I believe that the market is extremely expensive, but I'm, I'm also a value investor, so I'm less interested in where the market is. So I I'm more interested in what the value stocks are doing and. You mentioned this a little bit earlier that it was sort of an analog to 2000 where um, the market was expensive, value stocks were cheap. I think we're in a situation now where the, the most expensive stocks are at extreme levels of – they're as expensive as they've ever been. The median may be not as expensive as it was in 2000, but on some measures using sales, for example, it is extremely expensive. The value stocks aren't that cheap on historical measures. They're still at a premium to where they are on average, but they are cheap relative to expensive stocks. So I just, my, my question is, um, what are the indicators that you like to look at for your own portfolio? And um, those are sort of valuation indicators. And then what indicators are you looking at from a, you know, when or a momentum time? Like what, what, what do you, what do you, what's your timing indicator? Yeah, you know, so you're absolutely right. And I mean, it's, it's become, a mantra of the the bulls, which is you know value, valuation is not a good timing tool, and that's absolutely true. Um, you know I think what are good timing tools are breadth and risk appetites, and so I, those are two things I, I watch very carefully. Late last year in September, I was writing about how many Hindenburg omens were being triggered on the NYSE and the Nasdaq. Absolutely astounding, more than we ever saw in history. 
um, and you see these bursts of Hindenburg. And a Hindenburg Omen is essentially uh, alerting you to great disparity uh, in, in the market. So when the market is, is strong, it should be powered by most of the stocks in the market. You get a Hindenburg uh, Omen triggered when um, the market is rising, but fewer and fewer stocks uh, are actually pushing it pushing it higher. So it's essentially a breath warning. And I don't use it as like one Hindenburg Omen is going to, you know, signal a crash like some people, you know, talk about. I want to see how many Hindenburgers or Omens are triggered in a period of time. And that tells me that, you know, breadth disparity is widening. And in that fall of last year, we saw record numbers of Hindenburg Omens triggered on the NYSE and the NASDAQ that told me there's huge breadth disparity in the market right now. It might be powering higher to, to new highs. Um, but the NYSE didn't make new highs, um, even while the NASDAQ did uh, and the S&P did. Um, and that was kind of another you know, sign. So breadth, breadth can be an important warning and then risk appetites also, right? So you want to see um, the right sectors powering the market higher, right? Like today in this rally, right, we're seeing the utility stocks do phenomenally well. That tells me that in investors aren't really keen on taking risk. They're being, they're acting much more defensive. So when you see staples and utilities and these things kind of doing really well, and you see consumer discretionary and, you know, technology and these things doing relatively poorly, that's a, that's a clear sign that investor risk appetites are shifting. They're not, they're not um, embracing risk like they should be uh, at that point in the cycle. And so when, to me, when, when you have the breadth and the risk appetites both pointing you know, uh, or kind of diverging from price, that's, that's, that's a pretty good timing tool that um, you know, the market is, is pretty close to a reversal. So um, it, you can use those on multiple time frames too. But that's also one of the reasons why I've said the market is in a topping process is because we've seen these massive number of breath warnings over the past year. We've also seen uh, you know, risk appetites shifting pretty dramatically uh, like we've seen at past market peaks. Now, for me in my own portfolio, uh, you know, things I look at for value, and I think where we're the greatest value is to be found <clears throat> are in things that are kind of outside – so these owner-operated companies, right, that are systematically underweighted by the indexes, so much money has flown into passive and flown out of active that these stocks have been essentially uh, been forced to be sold by active managers, and 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 they're not being bought by passive because they're low float. Uh, and so that's I think you know kind of systematically one area where where you can find value, but. To me, there are pockets of companies, too. I look for a situation where there is massive and predictive insider buying. So you have an executive who has a good track record of buying their own stock, and they're buying a significant amount. Um, and that, to me, will hopefully confirm my idea that the stock is already cheap. Um, and in terms of cheap, I use a, a variety of different measures. Basically, I look at the valuation history of the company. I look at its valuation relative to its peers. Uh, and I'll also do usually a, a discounted cash flow model, basically, just to try and confirm my idea of what what fair value is, or even just to see what is the what is the uh, the stock price discounting right now. Um, so I don't use use the cash flow model as as, as a primary valuation tool. Um, and then I'll use I use technicals to see you know what is what is the trend, what is the strength, what is momentum. Usually I use technicals mainly for momentum. I don't want to buy something that has strong downside momentum. 
Uh, I want if it if it is still falling, I want to see waning momentum. That shows me signs that you know sellers are kind of running out of steam. So, there are things I think one of my one of my favorite ideas that I've had over the past you know few months has been post. Uh, Bill Sturitz is maybe the most successful insider I've ever seen in my career. Um, and the guy when he took over Ball Corp in the late 90s uh, and bought 40, 50, 60 million dollars worth of stock with his own money, brought in his own management team. They all bought as much stock as they could afford. Ball Corp's up 40 fold in the last 20 years. So uh, Bill Sturitz, you know, also turned me on to Herbalife a couple of years ago. I bought a big slug of Herbalife in early 2015 when he had nothing to do with the company. Uh, and, I, and I really think that's part of maybe the thesis behind Post today is he saw a company like Herbalife, if you have 80% gross margins, you can't go out of business, right? If I have 80% gross margins and I have no debt, I literally can't go out of business, right? It's, I, ha- I can have idiots running the company, like Buffett says, and it's really hard to, to hurt the business. And so Post recently has started selling their own kind of a protein powder shake type of a thing with their access to grocery store shelves and that type of thing. I think, I think you know, Steerit said, wait a second. 80% gross margin. That's awesome. Why don't we Why don't we come up with something at Post? It's not Post branded, um, but I do think you know he owns a ton of stock uh, and was buying more um, last year, uh, and the stock is still you know cheap relative to its own history, relative to its peers. That's the kind of thing that I look for. And then because of my my concerns about the overall market, I'll look to hedge that in, in some way against general market risk. How are you, how are you hedging? Just just with a how are you hedging? Well, I'm short. So I usually short individual stocks, but in very very small size. I don't like to to short individual stocks. You know, I'm not as as aggressive as I am on the long side. In in that respect, I usually kind of just short the broad indexes, um, and sometimes sectors. And so I am short the semiconductors pretty heavily today right now because talk about you know companies that are trading at the highest valuations in their history a lot of these stocks are trading nvidia for example i was short nvidia last year um i'm still short it was trading at a you know twice its valuation from the peak of the dot-com mania which is which is hard to believe right it's trading 15 times sales when it only got up to like seven eight nine times sales in the peak of the dot-com mania um and so what is that what is that stock discounting it's discounting that that company's going to take be take over every self-driving car, every AI application. I mean, they're literally going to own it all and be able to keep incredible margins in, in the process. Um, and really, what was driving a lot of their sales, I think, over the past you know couple of years is Bitcoin mining rigs. And so, when the Bitcoin price collapsed, a lot of those that that chip uh, shortages, you know, turned into you know chip oversupply. And and so. Um, they weren't talking about that very much in terms of their earnings calls, but you know that was that was the the uh, the extra factor to you know demand factor that really you know pushed the results over the top. Um, and now we have this massive you know chip oversupply and you know sales are are plummeting. And and so I want to be short. I'm short the semiconductor you know ETF against you know some of my long ideas. And but I but I do think you know for the average investor. And you and I have talked about this. There's simple tail hedging methodologies that people can use. And and to me, you know, when I when I suggest that, people say, "Well, God, that's that's so bearish. Why don't you just buy and buy and hold for, you know, long periods of time?" And and I go, "Well, you buy auto insurance, right? You buy homeowners insurance. You you protect yourselves in in the case of an you know adverse event in those areas." 
um, with equities at the highest valuations in history, it would make sense to me to buy some insurance against my investment portfolio, just like I would with anything else. And that's how I look at tail hedging. I think it makes a ton of sense today, maybe more sense than it's ever made before. So, um, yeah, there's there's simple tail hedging strategies you can use to buy deep out of money puts on a monthly basis. And, uh, and it's just look at it as an insurance policy. One of the things I like about tail hedging is that often it gets cheapest right at the moment that you really want it. So it's it's often the best bang for the buck. I, and I've done various things. I had I had uh, HYG, which is the junk bond ETF. I had puts on that last year that uh, it w- they were up a lot when the market was off, but I, I wanted to hold them through to expiration in January 20. And of course, they were, they were 83. They were struck at 83 and I bought it at 85, something like that. And then by the time they expired Jan 20, they were out of the money, even though they were up like 350% plus <laughs> On, on December 24, that was a rapid, right. rapid rally. I was sad to see them go. Right. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, I mean, it's funny. Every time I've made a, a decision, you know, based on whatever tax, you know, thing, I don't want to pay tax. It's been the wrong decision. Right? Yeah, you have to have to do it on the investment merits first. I've, I've done that ton of times and I've learned, you know what, take the gain, pay the taxes, you know, it's your, your or whatever. It's you're better off uh, in that respect. But but yeah, it was interesting too with that with that sell-off, and I think you and Chris Cole talked about this a little bit. I was surprised that volatility remained so subdued during that sell-off last year, um, and and for that reason, you know, people who were tail hedging, you know, were probably disappointed a little bit to the extent of uh, it didn't really protect them to as much as they would have liked. But that was that was very interesting um, to see volatility kind of remain subdued, even though it was a, a waterfall decline in December. Chris, I, I was speaking to Chris uh, as that was happening, and he was he was pretty. Uh, he didn't seem to think that that was the the real thing, which I was surprised about because I I certainly thought it was the real thing. But he was he was pretty calm through the whole thing, and he didn't expect to see anything. And it was showing up in the in the volatility as well. It wasn't sort of taking off, and I don't know why that was. Yeah, I, you know, it was. I, was the exact opposite of what we saw earlier in the year where you had the, the volatility implosion and there was just tons of short covering, covering and vol. And maybe it just was the fact that there wasn't that much of a big of a short position in vol. Um, or, you know, I, I'm just amazed at how resilient a lot of these volatility short sellers are. Like, is you know, they get crushed and then they come right back in and start selling it at the lows. And, you know, maybe they were, they were just, uh, you know, uh, comfortable in continuing to sell vol into that decline. Which to me would be, you know, it's, I'm not willing to step in front of that steamroller. But they've been right over and over again, but none of them have right. read "Filled by Randomness." Evidently, right, right. Um, I think that that's that's coming up on our time. It's been a a really fascinating discussion, Jesse. I really do appreciate you giving me some of your time. If folks want to get in contact with you, what's the best way of doing that? Um, at thefelderreport.com, I write a blog, and there's a little, um, you know, contact us there that I, I reply to personally. So, um, yeah, and, and I'm pretty active on on Twitter also. Um, I don't look at the ads, uh, so don't at me on Twitter because I, I literally just ha- don't look at them. But you can direct message me on Twitter if there's, you know, things people want to discuss too. You just can't be a bear on Twitter. Bears are uh, excluded from the body somehow. They're, they're forced out. I've discovered that too. Anything that's bearish gets a lot of hate. 
Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I think Twitter added a feature, maybe it was like a, a year ago or something, where you can literally just turn off your ads. So, like, you only, I only see the ones from the people I follow. And I feel like you know, that, that keeps me sane. So. That's smart. That's a smart approach. <laughs> yeah. Jesse Felder of the Felder Report, thank you very much. It was my honor. Thanks, Toby, for having me on. I'm really excited to, to be on your new show, and, and I'm a fan. Uh, I was really excited to hear that you were doing this. And so I'm, I'm, I'm eager to hear you know, where you go with this, and, and uh, yeah, best of luck with it. Thank you.